Welcome to the Disney Cruise Line Blog Podcast. On this episode, I want to share some exciting developments out of Port Canaveral regarding Disney Cruise Line and their plans to renovate their cruise terminal as well as nearby cruise terminal CT-10 for use in the future once uh, they'll have a third full-time ship there. Port Canaveral's January meeting was held on the 23rd of the month. And during the meeting, they discussed the upgrades plan for the renovation plans for the terminals. I got some audio of the meeting we'll play here in a little bit. In doing so, the port put the agenda item up. And in the agenda item list of documents, there's a design drawing kind of for the waterside projects required on the pier side of things for their new class of ship. The design listed Disney Triton with some preliminary specifications on the size of the vessel, uh, leading to more or less confirm previous rumors that the three new ships are kind of being umbrellaed in under Project Triton. Right now we're calling them the Triton class of ships. That's obviously not likely to be the name of the first ship, even though, you know, it's typically when you call, you know, class, dream class, magic class, that the first ship defines the class name. However, I think this is just preliminary internal project names at the time and I really don't think the names have been settled upon just yet. So moving on to the meeting, here's some audio uh, discussing the plans for the terminal renovations, as well as a little background on the uh, contractors they've narrowed down. Cruise terminal number eight, another exciting story. We continue to have um, in-depth discussions with Disney Cruise Line on how this terminal is going to look. Uh, They have driven the appearance. It still will maintain that same kind of steamboat willy appearance that that it had initially in the late 90s. And we will continue with that vernacular. You'll see some areas in front of CT8 are being converted to larger green open space areas, kind of trying to move that vehicular traffic that currently is in front of the terminal out to the main drop-off. We are expanding expanding that main drop-off. Uh, the feasibility study has just recently wrapped up with Vermelo Ahamel. They did a fantastic job. We identified the budget that you see here. Uh, This is a conceptual level budget based on conceptual renderings, uh, conceptual programming. Just under 40 million for CTA, almost 7 million on 10, and that does include uh, Marine Works and um, the new passenger boarding bridge at eight. For a total of just under uh, 46.5 million, and Disney has recently agreed to that as a target budget for the project that's going to include all hard costs and soft costs. So we're really excited to be having reached that milestone. We've been having walkthroughs. Um, I know Dave German's group has, uh, has spearheaded a lot of those walkthroughs, and we've had probably one a month or two a month since I think May of last year and a lot of uh, subsequent design meetings. So a lot of effort has gone into the project. and. We're excited to see it move on to the next stage. That would be the commercial agreement that Captain Murray is spearheading. A few specific details on Terminal 8. We covered these. um, It's been a few months, but we're looking at adding a new baggage screening building on Terminal 8, about 7,000 square foot. 4,600 square foot for an expanded arrivals hall in front of Terminal 8. A new internal, potentially external, ADA ramp uh, for passenger debark. It's that same ramp system that you see in other terminals that's very functional, very low maintenance, and it negates the need for multiple escalators and elevators for that that two-story vertical transport uh, for passenger debark. On that note, we did have the selection committee meeting that met uh, met on Friday. We we had uh, uh, interviews, presentations from BBA, 
um, and BEA, uh, and the team totally uh, based on points selected BEA to move forward as the landside designer, and that is one of your consent agenda items today. I am seeking authorization to um, enter into contract negotiations to return to the commissioner at a later date um, in conjunction with the approval of the commercial agreement to actually kick off, authorize, execute those contracts for design both on the land side architecture and civil and then on the marine design as well. So we got Jacobs as our recommendation on the marine side. Uh, it was a fantastic competition and it was it was great to see the process really work between two qualified marine designers, Jacobs, Moffat, Dick, Moffat Nickel, and then three highly qualified architects, architect teams on the land side. Hey, Billy, yes, sir. Just a quick comment, though, a question here. Okay, well, you're, you're, now you're we're looking to enter into approval to negotiate fully designed contracts, yet we've got a $46.5 million number. And, and the way it works is that number becomes gets gets a lot of traction the, the whole the funding side of this whole thing is also feasible talk about that just a little bit John I, I can say that we haven't finalized an agreement commercial agreement yet right. uh, we're, we're very optimistic that we're going to get there we've had some great discussions with our partner and uh, it's just a matter of, of getting it finalized at this point okay so that that's that's right progress more yeah. than you've had recently Yes, and, and what we've done, uh, you know, the, we did the bond offering and all, this was all discussed with the, uh, with the rating agencies all ahead of time. So they, they're not, this is not a surprise to anyone, so. All right, thanks. Absolutely, um, I would like to note that this is an RFQ process, so um, rates nor fees were ever considered in selecting that design team. Um, it is solely based on qualifications, and the BEA team really did come with some some excellent um, proposed methods for for I hate to say not maintain the terminal active entirely through the project, but but really minimize impact to the terminal in such ways that also reduced budget. So we really felt like um, they were the shining star of the three presentations for some very significant reasons. Um, let me move on. So Terminal 8, uh, another uh, purchase that we'll need to initiate in the coming months will be a new jetway-style passenger boarding bridge to replace the one that's currently sitting at, at Terminal 8. And uh, we need to replace it primarily due to the dimensions of the new class of vessel so that we can serve that with, um, with the existing finished floor of the second floor of Terminal 8 um, <clears throat> to satisfy that, that uh, real, really just a basic geometric problem of low tide, high tide, and the second uh, floor, finished floor. In addition, we're expanding the concierge, that is their term for the VIP area of about 1,200 square foot. And their current 384 seats, Disney Cruise Line is the master of, of efficiency in this terminal. We are increasing that to about 1,000 seats. Like all the other cruise lines, they're moving towards more of a mobile check-in as opposed to the traditional check-in counters that we've constructed in most of our terminals. And we're able to do away with some of those existing check-in counters and make room for uh, more seating. And then I referenced that expanded uh, POV drop-off area. It pretty much wraps up all of, uh, you know, the bullet points for uh, Cruise Terminal 8, the uh, main Disney Cruise Line terminal. Uh, next, you're going to hear them talk about Cruise Terminal 10, which is the adjacent terminal that you can see uh, 
when you're at the terminal. If you're facing the ship at the terminal, it's the terminal immediately to your right. Over to cruise terminal number 10. We're expanding the uh, entrance bridge right now. The main entrance has a secondary entrance kind of from the garage, and not, those two do not connect outside the building on the second floor, the elevated floor. So there's been identified a potential need to uh, connect those two. So this roughly 1,000-square-foot expanded entrance will be an elevated entrance that connects the two um, existing uh, kind of front porch areas leading into Terminal 10. Front porch being a technical, highly technical architectural term. So we'll um, be expanding the internal concierge area to include 307 seats, uh, new airport-style seating. So we'll have over 1,000 seats in, in Cruise Terminal 10, which is roughly the same count that we currently have. However, it's going to be higher-end furniture, some USB charging stations, um, something that, that fits the look, fit, and finish of the Disney um, product. And we'll be adding a new uh, marine dolphin um, in the uh, east side of that terminal too for tying up of the new class of vessel. Feel free to ask any questions on that before I move on. What is a marine dolphin? Thank you. It's like a mooring point. So it's a pile-supported concrete platform that will sit to the west of the existing pile-supported pier. And it'll have a 225-ton bollard on it. What is the bollard rating for that? 175 tons or do you remember on the new TT-10? 200 ton uh, mooring bollard sitting on it for a bow or stern line to tie off. Following the discussion of the plans for the two terminals, they briefly took some time to let the public know why these renovations are happening. Additional details were then revealed, such as, uh, you know, some contemplated itineraries uh, once a third full time year round ship comes to Port Canaveral for Disney Cruise Line. The idea is not to uh, replicate that another set of three and four nights or seven night alternating Eastern and Westerns. Uh, it was mentioned specifically a uh, five, five, four rotation, which uh, would be similar to kind of what's being offered down in Miami with the uh, various offerings like on the magic, right? And, and Bill, just so the general public understands why we're making these adjustments to the two terminals. Can we just go over the, can we talk about Disney's getting new ships? Or? Yeah, well, I think we can talk about it just at a high level that, that uh, their plan longer term is to add a third ship at the port, which will be on a different rotation than their current uh, two vessels. And, and when, as I mentioned earlier, when you go to a 554 rotation, which is what's contemplated, nothing's uh, for certain right now, but if, if you go to that type of a rotation, you would have two ships in port at the same time. So what we're doing with Cruise Terminal 10 is some minor modifications that would allow them to have two vessels here simultaneously. And that's, that's the rationale for this. So, I mean, just again, for, for the general public to understand why are we doing this, yeah. it's not just to make it look pretty and add new nope. stuff. It's, it's in reaction to a customer that's bringing another ship here and, and, and increasing our, our throughput. They're building the three Excellent ships, point. three new ships, and they're working on their fleet deployment now. Nothing has been decided, and they haven't publicized anything, but uh, uh, we're, we're anticipating additional business at Port Canaveral, and we're making the adjustments now so that... Uh, we're prepared when the ships do arrive or are delivered. So, thank you. Later on in the meeting, the agenda item was briefly pulled. The agenda item specifically for the land side, the terminal side renovations, was briefly pulled for further discussion, which we'll pick up with right now. RFQ process, um, the initial due date was December 20th, right before we went on Christmas break. 
We did receive three very qualified submittals from names that we're very familiar with. Um, the BEA team has done a significant portion of the cruise terminal design here at Fort Canaveral over the years. Uh, BA, Bermela Bahamil, we've become very familiar with through the master planning process, the, the design of cruise terminal number three, their, their project manager, Scott Bakos, has helped us through the feasibility study with the uh, Terminal 8 and 10 project, and he's done a fantastic job. The uh, third team was a combination of trans systems, uh, with, of which Jim Dubay is now with, and also um, Gustavo uh, Baron, Baronblum. That, did I pronounce that correct? So we are getting to know Gustavo, that team, uh, my former colleagues at Port Miami highly recommended that team. Uh, they've done a lot of work in cruise terminals at Port Miami and throughout the Caribbean. So what we expressed this past Friday to the attending uh, public, the consultants that were there for our selection committee meeting that, that met this past Friday at 4, was selfishly the port could honestly, we could say that there was no bad choice for us amongst all three teams. We had three highly qualified architectural teams, they all brought their A game to the table. We had five uh, selection committee mem members, um, Patrick Hammond, Tom Foxhoven, Veronica Narvez-Lugo, Clyde Mathis, and Dave German. They all, they all struggled through um, the deliberations over uh, how close the race really was and uh, great points that were brought up, not just in the qualifications packages, but also in the presentations that took place this past Friday afternoon, and um, the, the the reality is that we do have to make a choice. We have to bring the commission a recommendation, and we feel incredibly strongly that of the three hollow, highly qualified teams, we do have um, the most qualified partner in BEA that we're recommending to you. Some of the level of detail, if I could just step back briefly, uh, BEA, Bruno Ramos, um, that team performed the redesign of uh, five. Uh, they designed cruise terminal number 10. They uh, have designed, uh, I think, the original terminal eight, so they're very familiar with the project. And the level of detail and the cost breakdown that they brought to us in their presentation was welcome. It was unexpected, but it was very welcome. And then they had some unique ideas about construction phasing for the terminal, and I think that that's a very strong attribute of that team, of that company. Uh, I think we witnessed it during the renovations of 5 and 10, and, um, and we were once again reminded of that listening to their presentations on Friday. So um, it was, the system worked, worked exactly how it should work. We have uh, highly qualified staff that put pen to paper, evaluated based on strict criteria that was required we allocated the points, and I think the top two were within two points of each other based on a 100-point, I think it was a 100-point potential total. Um, so it was a very, very tight race uh, amongst uh, very competitive firms. And uh, we, we hands down feel very confident about the recommendation in, in BEA. Okay, very good. Um, the next step is we enter into a contract with them. Is there, and this is not a fixed-price contract. Is that right? It will be a um, hourly not to exceed is, I think, puts us in the best position. So we will get an estimate for design services, a proposal for design services, and it will be a not to exceed number. 
and based on time and material, that's what we will push for. We will pay what they spend, and if there's a credit due, unspent um, design fee at the end of the job, then we don't pay that. We get that back. And uh, that is what we're seeking your permission to, is to enter into contract negotiations with both on this item. It's specific to the land side designer. We will come back to you at a later date in conjunction with the approved commercial agreement um, uh, for full authorization execution of that contract. So, so after we enter into an agreement with, with Disney, we're going to come back and actually approve the contract. Okay, very good. Correct. Like most likely, my, my, my hope would be at the same exact meeting. Approved contract, uh, approved commercial agreement, kicking off the design, and we, depending upon the timing, we might even have a purchase before you for the procurement of the, the new Jetway-style gangway because we've got about a 15-month lead time on that. Those companies are very busy. But we're going to base it all at Captain Murray's lead on the timing of the commercial agreement. Immediately after the brief discussion there, uh, commissioners brought it up for a vote. Very good. Um, I will entertain a motion on 1C. So moved. Second. All in favor? Aye. Moving on to item 3A. So there you have it. Uh, Pork and Everill approved both uh, the water side and land side uh, agenda items, which are now allowing the port staff to enter negotiate contract negotiations with the respective vendors. Uh, next we will find uh pork and ever will vote eventually vote on, you know, finalized contracts with the vendors as well as a contract or uh, an agreement, if you will, with Disney cruise line for the overall project. And before we close out on this episode of the Disney cruise line blog podcast, I wanted to take an opportunity to answer some listener voicemail. Hi, Scott, Emily, and Isabel. My name's Stephen. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. I'm a longtime DVC member and frequent visitor to Disney World. Never been on a Disney cruise, but my family and I have one booked for next June. It's a five-night double dip on the dream, not long after your TCL uh, blog trip. Anyway, thanks for the time you guys put in and the effort you make to make a great website and a great podcast. I just finished binge listening to the podcast, and I almost feel like I've been on a cruise uh, when I have it. But I've got two questions for you guys. I have two children. My son will be 11. My daughter will be 12 at the time we cruise, which I think puts them in the window where they can do either the Ocean Years Lab or the Edge Club. The unofficial guide made it sound like they had to choose one or the other for the whole trip, and I was wondering if it was true. And whether it is or it isn't, uh, any advice you have or thoughts you have about those two clubs would be great for kids that are sort of on the borderline uh, of the age groups. And secondly, assuming hopefully this cruise will go well and the family will love it, and I am excited about it, uh, irrationally excited about it, actually. And Anyway, I, I would love to hear your suggestions for what a great second cruise would be should this one go well. Anyway, thanks again. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, I think the best person to ask about you know, going between the club, lab, and the edge, it's Isabel. Because our last two cruises, she happened to be in that age range where she can go between the two. Yes, I think I've already answered one of your questions. You can go between the two clubs, or I mean, the Oceaneer Club, the Oceaneer Lab, as well as edge, 
when you're on that, you know, in between age, you'll be familiar with the uh, checking into the Ocean Air Lab and Ocean Air Club. You get your wristband and, uh, you know, more or less a magic band that works on the ship for checking in, checking out. Isabel, how is what is the process like? You know, because you've gone, you've gotten your magic band for the Ocean Air Lab, Ocean Air Club, and then what have you had to do to then get access to the to Edge? Invocation well, Day, I think you could do it on any other day in case you can't make it, but you can go and you just give them your card and they put a sticker on it and then you could just go. And this is in Edge. Yes. At that age, you do have the best of both worlds, or at least you know, the kids have the best of you know those three different venues. Ocean Air Club, <laughs> Ocean Air Club, Ocean Air Lab, and Edge. And Isabel, where did you find yourself giving, having access to all of it? Where did you end up spending most of your time? To be honest, both of them. It was just back and forth. It depended. Actually, it depended the activities. If I saw something I liked in one place, I'd probably go from there to there. I will. I will say that it seemed like the Edge had a lot of activities in the late nights, or I mean, not late nights, but into the late evening. Yes, they did. They had. You can be a flash mob for. I think it's the pirate show on deck, and they had. There's a heroes and villains. We can like do a bunch of teaming. There's a lot of fun group activity. Would you say to get the most out of Edge though, you need to kind of go to a lot of the a lot of the events during the day or can you just how did you find it? Was it more or less, you know, jump in and fall in line with everybody else or did you kind of feel like you weren't part of the overall experience because you weren't there all the time like some other kids? Well, there are kids that were there a lot and I definitely didn't fall in with them cuz there was a big group. I didn't really know the counselors as much. So if you go more, you, yeah, you definitely fall into that group. And the counselors, like, you know the counselors, you know all the kids that usually show up. So you have a group of people that are usually at most of the events. So it kind of covers, you know, what to expect. Uh, More or less, if you go to a lot of the events, you're kind of part of the overall group. If not, they still welcome you in, though. Mm -hmm, Definitely. All right, so you've been able to experience the uh, you know the transition between the Ocean Air Club Lab and Edge on both the Magic and the Disney Dream. So you've covered both classes of ship. What are your thoughts on the difference between like the Magic class and the Dream class in terms of Edge? Well, the Magic class is much easier to get to, and it's on a more central part of the ship. It's right off the pool deck. We're in the old arcades there, whereas on the Dream and Fantasy, it's up funnel on deck thirteen. Yeah, it is much easier you know to bounce in and out. Say if you're at the pool deck. You can go back and forth. And you could also bring food in. Everybody's favorite, going to get the ice cream. Is there anything special about being able to get in, you know, between uh, the experiences with Ocean Air Club and Lab? Because over on Castaway Key, you can go to Scuttle's Cove while you're in the Ocean Air Club and Lab age. What about, you know, as you transition up to Edge, is there anything to look forward to on Castaway Key? Yes, indeed. You can do a lot more stuff around the island. Like they have a scavenger hunt where you can go around the island. And I think there are some other activities, but... Like, you're not just in one area. You can go around and have more fun. Excellent, Stephen. That's Isabel's synopsis between the two uh, Ocean Air Club, Ocean Air Lab, and Edge, and kind of being in that in-between in age group. The best summary there is you kind of have the best of both worlds. You can pick and choose. However, there is a little bit of a drawback being that if you kind of, because there's kind of a programming that kind of evolves throughout the duration of the cruise, when you are just kind of tiptoeing yourself in and out of the edge, you're not really part of the overall, uh, the core group of kids that are in the edge every day of the cruise. Oh, I forgot. Didn't you guys get to like take over Vibe on one at one point? Yes. And then in Vibe takes over Edge. So there's a little bit of opportunity for the uh, older kids to go down to the 
tween space of Edge, and then the tweens get to kind of invade Vibe and kind of check out, you know, what's ahead in a couple, you know, in a couple years once they get to those ages. As for your second question about which itinerary to follow up a five night uh, double dip to Castaway Key. I think kind of the natural progression because Scott and I did our honeymoon cruise was a three night, but then our first cruise with Isabel was actually a five night double dip. But I think that the next segue is kind of like your seven night um, Eastern or Western. Now the Western is going to give you um, an extra port and the Eastern is going to give you an extra sea day. Um, If you're a listener to the podcast and you know, avid reader of the website, you know that we prefer the Eastern because we love St. John. Um, so we use St. Thomas as our stop over to St. John. Um, Tortola is great. I know the hurricane kind of ravaged that area, but, you know, we did snorkeling in the caves um, off of Tortola. Um, you know, there's St. Saint John is, you know, trying to come back to life. St. Thomas is fine too, but I know I can speak for all of us that we enjoy St. John the most because we also spent a, um, you know, a 10 night vacation there because we loved it so much. So, however, the first cruise we did, um, first seven night was a Western on the magic. So I went to Key West, I went to Cozumel and I went to Grand Cayman. Um, very enjoyable. You have to decide, you know, kind of what you want to see, what you want to do. So I would recommend checking out the itineraries, checking out the ports, um, and see what you want to do. But I think that's kind of the next natural step for you is going to be that seven night Eastern or Western cruise. I'm in full agreement with Emily on this. I would definitely, you know, that second step, you know, into cruising would be the Caribbean routes and then go from there. Have a question, comment, rumor, or just want to say hi? Call 321-765-3252 to leave a voicemail, and we just might include it in a future episode. You can reach us via the comments section on the website, email at contact at disneycruiselineblog.com, Twitter at the DCL blog, and Facebook, facebook.com slash disneycruiselineblog.com.